This is ACM Bytecast, a podcast series from the Association for Computing Machinery, the world's largest education and scientific computing society. We talk to researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice. They share their experiences, the lessons they've learned, and their visions for the future of computing. I am your host, Rashmi Mohan. You know you've run into a very special guest when their list of teaching and mentorship awards rivals their long list of accomplishments and awards for contributions to computer systems. Add to that a successful entrepreneur and open source contributor, and you wonder, is there anything they can't do? Marco Seltzer is the Canada 150 Research Chair in Computer Systems and the Sheraton Family Chair of Computer Science at the University of British Columbia. Previously, she was the Herschel Smith Professor of Computer Science at Harvard University's School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and the Director of Center for Research on Computation and Society. She has won the USENIC's Lifetime Achievement Award for her groundbreaking work in databases and her company, Sleepy Cat Software, was awarded the prestigious Sigmod Systems Award. She is an ACM Fellow and was recently named as one of the top 20 women in cybersecurity in Canada. She plays soccer, she bakes, she teaches, and runs the world like a boss. What makes her tick? We're about to find out. Margot, welcome to ACM Bytecast. Thanks so much for that introduction. I hope I can live up to it in the podcast. Oh, we're super excited to have you. And I'd love to lead with the question that I ask all my guests, Marco, which is if you could please introduce yourself and talk about what you currently do, as well as give us some insight into what drew you into this field of work. I like to tell the story that I grew up in a, in a fairly high achieving family, unsurprisingly, and there was really only one thing I learned. And that was that both of my two older brothers had been second in their classes in high school, and they had both been beaten by the smart girl. So I grew up in this incredibly privileged environment where I knew from an early age that girls were smarter than boys, and that you know I was finally my family's opportunity to have the smart girl. For a long time, I had no idea that there were things like gender problems in science or any of those things, because that wasn't the story that I'd been told as a kid. So my family is pretty mathy sciencey, and I was too. I grew up in a teeny tiny small town. I like to describe it that we had more cows than people. That is true. And then I went to Harvard for my undergraduate degree and was a little bit intimidated, to say the least. And so when it came time to pick what Harvard calls concentrations, anyone else would call majors, I went through the courses of instruction, and they list like all the requirements for every major. And I looked for ones that were mathy science and didn't have either a thesis requirement or a comprehensive exam, and you could still get honors. I want to be very explicit. I actually do not advise either my children or my advisees or any of my students to use this algorithm, but it is, in fact, exactly the algorithm that I chose. <laughs> At that time, Harvard had no computer science degree, but they did have an applied mathematics program which had some computer science. And I had an older brother who'd done computer science. So I figured if he could do it, I could too. This is how I stumbled into a field that has become a profession and has served me pretty well for the past very large number of years. 
that's sort of the the origin story. Where should we go from there? It seems to have worked out really well for you. I get what you're saying about don't use this algorithm today. I also wanted to know, what do you currently do? What does your role look like today? So my role today is a little bit crazy, to be perfectly honest. I came to UBC four years ago, and part of my mandate was really to build up, rebuild a systems group that was you know, starting to suffer some attrition. Many of our core faculty were starting to think about you know, retirement. And so they were looking to rejuvenate the systems area. And largely, I was brought in to do that. So I'm in the same role I was at for the 25 years prior, but doing it in quite a different way. So I have many more students than I ever had when I was at Harvard. And I now have three new junior colleagues that I am mentoring. I'm super excited. I think they are really the people who are going to do the great work at UBC. And my job is to support them in any way I can. We are, as part of that effort, we are trying to put together an industry consortium. And let me be perfectly transparent. I had a fabulous graduate school experience at Berkeley under the four superstars of Patterson, Katz, Stonebreaker, and Osterhout. And they had a fabulous setup with industry where twice a year we went and had these retreats. We got to know the really big names in our fields. They gave us feedback on our work. And I have actually wanted to reproduce an environment like that for my students ever since I became a faculty member. And I feel like we're on the verge of being ready to launch something like that at UPC, where we can give that experience to our students as well. So having been here four years, I decided not only to admit lots of students, but that I should be bold, which some people might interpret as crazy in my research, and really branch out into areas that reflected the interest of the postdocs I was able to recruit, as well as the students that I'm able to recruit. So I actually have research activities in areas that many people might not even think of as systems, but it's a pretty broad portfolio. So for example, I have a fabulously successful collaboration with Cynthia Rudin of Duke, and we do interpretable machine learning. And I like to say, you know, she does all the hard math stuff, and I like to try to make it run really fast. But we've had a fabulously, just incredibly productive collaboration there. So she, this week, is giving a keynote at AAAI. We have a paper there. We'll have a paper coming out at AI Stats. We regularly submit to places like ICML and NeurIPS. And that's been tremendously fun, and I've gotten to learn a ton. So that's one area. I became really interested in program synthesis over the past seven or eight years, and starting a, a project at Harvard that again, you could either describe as courageous or crazy. And then based on that, we've, we've done some more program synthesis here at UBC. I'm really interested in graph processing systems. So I have a bunch of students who work on that. I was managed to attract a postdoc who has a background in real-time systems. And so we've been collaborating with colleagues in the chemistry department who have a fully automated lab where they do chemical synthesis, and we're looking at security problems there. So it's sort of a cyber-physical security angle. And storage is my bread and butter, so I have a couple of students who do work in storage. I have claimed for 30 years that I am not a networking person, and now I find myself working with a student who wants to do programmable network switches. So I have work in that area too. 
and I'm probably forgetting a few things. But I think the the higher order bit is that I think too often we constrain ourselves to focusing in a teeny tiny area. And I think the most interesting problems really take place at the boundaries between conventional areas. So I've been trying to get rid of all those boundaries. Uh, that's incredible, uh, Margot. I mean, that interdisciplinary work that you talk about, you know, sounds amazingly interesting and probably opens up to so many other sort of, you know, collaborations for you. Do you feel like some of the, I mean, how does one, you know, what would be your advice? How does one seek out these collaborations? Is it typically from somebody like you're, you know, you're in charge of this program and, you know, you have this sort of ability to look for these opportunities because you believe that this is where the interesting work happens. How does one sort of train themselves in that direction? Direction, or what would your sort of guidance be if you know one is not exactly in that environment? Like, how do we develop that skill? I think the core answer there is an intellectual openness. And also, sometimes it's just finding the right people, even if you don't feel like they're working on exactly the problem you want to be working on. So when Cynthia and I started our collaboration, there was no thought in the back of my head that I am going to move into this area. I am going to actually make huge strides in machine learning. Like that was just not on the radar screen. Instead, it was Cynthia who was looking for ways to make her techniques more scalable. And, you know, I had students who'd worked on similar problems and we made software more scalable. And so it, it required that I reach outside my comfort zone I start to think about papers that have mathematical proofs and theorems, which is not something I'm super comfortable with. And at the end of the day, the key ability is the ability to be truly humble and ask what I like to call are the stupid questions, because this was a new area. I didn't have any expertise, but I had a very trusting relationship with Cynthia where I felt comfortable saying, like, I don't understand this. And, and it seems like this other thing is true. And sometimes those stupid questions would lead to really interesting breakthroughs for us. And similarly, there were the flip side happened where there were systemsy issues where we had a thorny problem to solve. And Cynthia would ask, you know, an innocent question and we'd all look at each other. It's like, oh my God, that's exactly right. That will help us solve this problem. I think the more senior you become, the more you expect yourself to know all the answers. And I think that's really, really dangerous. I think the naivete and innocence and willingness to ask what you think might be really stupid questions is actually incredibly liberating. And so I have really embraced, you know, working with students and saying, look, I do not know what you're working, you know, I, I don't understand this to the level you do. So help me come up to speed on it. And I think it, it takes a certain confidence to be able to say that. And then with that confidence, the ability to say, I just don't know, but I want to learn. And I think that is perhaps the scariest part and the thing that people find most challenging. That's an absolutely mind-blowing, I would say, idea that you bring about, right? And I think it ties back to, again, I was listening to some of your other talks where you talk about, you know, also taking risks. You are taking a risk when you go into this area. That, I mean, you've built expertise in a certain area over a number of years, and now you're going into an area that you're not that familiar with. So one, you know, I completely, you know, agree with what you're saying, which is you go in there with a level of humility and, and willingness to learn, but also with the risk that this may work out, this may not, we don't know where this is going to lead. And that risk I remember you mentioning was, is easier to take when you're earlier in your career. Is that necessarily true? 
Yes and no. I mean, the publisher parish mentality is absolutely there, especially with young faculty. And I think that that does breed a certain kind of risk averseness. And so as a young faculty member, I think that's really hard because you want to go into a project with a pretty high confidence that something's going to work out. Now, if you know for a fact going in that something is going to work, then I would argue it can't exactly be research. But I think as a young faculty member, you need to go with the high probability projects, or at least many of your projects should be high probability. But I think there's always space maybe for a little bit of risk. And I think maybe the the key is to practice taking risks, even at an early stage, not with everything, but you know, at any point in time, maybe there's one somewhat, you know, risky thing that you're working on that if it pans out is going to be super exciting. And if it doesn't pan out, you'll learn a ton. Do you feel, Margot, that, you know, collaboration, I know one of the goals that you have with this role that you've taken up is to actually bring industry and academia closer, right? Do you feel like the collaboration that you have currently um, with Cynthia, as you were mentioning, seems like more academic to academic collaboration? Are there challenges that happen when you're sort of working with folks in industry and trying to solve a common problem that maybe, you know, one of you has identified? So Cynthia and I are very much an academic-academic collaboration. This issue of academic industry collaboration is one that has really changed dramatically over the course of my career. So when I started in this field, there was a much blurrier line between academic research and commercial practice, at least in systems. And this was manifest in the conferences we had where you would have not only faculty trying to publish papers, but you would have people who work in research labs, and there were more of them then, but you would also have product people. And the product people kept us grounded. So I like to joke that I'm not interested in solving problems that start with the statement, if pigs could fly, because I've never seen the flying pigs. So having not only industrial collaborators, but industrial collaborators who embedded in the product space that that have to solve real people's problems, I think is crucial. And I feel that what has happened as our field has matured is that the gap between research and product has become so wide that some of the time I feel like those of us in academia are working on problems that are, are just not relevant today and won't be relevant for a long time. And I feel that that has been a disservice. So one of the best experiences I had in graduate school was the biannual retreats that we used to have where we got real feedback from real people. And sometimes it was like, yeah, that's never going to work in practice. Do something better. And that was really valuable. And today, in some cases, comments like that, it's like, well, we don't, we don't care about practice. We're looking at the future. But I, I think that's a, a little bit myopic. I do have to talk about your graduate school experience, though. I know your work on the Berkeley DB I mean, was innovative and pathbreaking and is integral um, to your story. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and how it sure. came about? Berkeley DB is in large part the result of um, what I like to call, you know, dumb graduate student syndrome. I took a graduate database course from Mike Stonebreaker and I found one of the papers by Witwold Litvin particularly engaging. It was about extensible dynamic hashing. And this happened to coincide 
with when the folks in the computer systems research group, i.e. the people who brought you Berkeley Unix, were working on freeing up the entire user level suite of libraries and tools, to which ultimately would enable an unencumbered Unix distribution. And so, what, you know, they needed replacements for lots of things. And one of the things they needed replacements for were the old uh, NDBM package and the in-memory hSearch package, both of which were methods of doing hashing. And I was, you know, a dumb, naive graduate student. And so Keith Bostick, who at the time was my roommate, is now my husband and has been for many years, said, hey, how would you like to, you know, do that cool stuff that you're reading about as a replacement for these packages? And I was like, sure, I'll do that. As I said, this was dumb graduate student syndrome. As a result, so I teamed up with a a fellow I had never met. This was back in the early 90s when remote collaboration was not necessarily a thing. And uh, Ozan Yiet and I, he was at York University, managed to build this hash package without ever meeting in person. And I don't think we ever even spoke on the phone, but we exchanged a lot of email. And we put together this little hash package. And that was the beginning. And then Keith Bostick, who had in the back of his head had always wanted to use a what he called a record manager to implement a new unencumbered version of VI, roped in Mike Olson, who had worked at a bunch of companies. And the first thing he'd done at all those companies was build a B-tree package. And Mike was currently a master's student working on the Postgres project. And Keith's like, hey, Mike, how would you like to build you know, another B-tree? Mike's like, oh, my God, no, I've built so many of those. And then Keith convinced him that if he did it one more time, he would never have to do it again. So Mike bought in. And so what happened was we had this hash package. Mike built the B-trees. Keith really did the architecture to give us a access method independent API on top of these two software packages. This was essentially the beginning of Berkeley DB. This got released as DB185. It was shipped with 4.4 BSD. And then a funny thing happened, which is people started using it. And people started using it in really scary ways. So we would periodically get email like, we're using Berkeley DB to store credit card data. And it was like, it's like not designed for that. Like it can lose data. There's no reliability. And Mike and I had done what was really an academic prototype of how to add transactions to Berkeley DB, which you can think of as providing sort of the the core functionality of a relational database in a very different package. And it was a package that would let you just link it directly into lots of applications. At some point, Keith and I got approached by um, Netscape. That was where the the first browser people out of the University of Michigan, who also developed an LDAP server, which became instrumental. Anyway, they're like, hey, that transaction stuff, whatever happened to it? And it was like, no, no, grad student code. But at the end of the day, they said, you know, we'd really like a transactional version of Berkeley DB. And this is something Keith and I, having now been married for a while, decided we'd really like to build. And essentially, we crafted a deal with Netscape such that we could do this work we really wanted to do. We would retain rights to it, so we could try to go sell it to others. And from a personal level, if we never sold another copy, we'd be really happy because we'd produce some good technology. And so it was on the basis of that deal that we started a company because, well, there was actually a house we owned and we didn't want to bet the house. And so we formed a company. And then after we 
got the first release of the product for Netscape, we hung a shingle out, which in those early web days meant you built a website. And lo and behold, other people wanted to buy it too. That's the Berkeley DB origin story. There were a couple of strategic decisions that really enabled BDB to be what it was. The first was that we structured this deal with Netscape so that we never had to take any external funding. We were not looking to become rich. We didn't want to work with venture capitalists. It was, this is enough money to let us do this project in what I like to describe as the second 40 hours and build a piece of software that we really cared about. So we didn't start out with these, you know, world domination expectations. And I think that was crucial. The second piece is that Keith invested a huge amount of time talking to lawyers and other people who had open source libraries and figuring out how we could maintain Berkeley DB as an open source product that would be available to the research community and to anyone else who was building open source. And yet provide a foundation that would let us have a business that generated revenue. And so I think we were, if we weren't the first, we were certainly one of the first to really have a dual license business where we had an open source license. And yet we also had a business where we could make money by selling licenses to people. That was all Keith's hard work at getting the right license and making that happen. That's some pretty, um, you know, I would say, you know, visionary sort of, you know, work there, because like you mentioned, it was not very common. Although I do want to ask you, was the idea of staying self-funded, was that common in those times? I mean, I know today, you know, you think about startups and you think about you know, one of the first things after you have somewhat of a, a viable product is to go out and, and seek funding to be able to scale, to be able to hire, to be able to do all the things that you want to do. So was that decision unique for those times? Oh, heavens, yes. It is still possible to build applications in your basement. But when you say startup, that's not the stars that show up in people's eyes. They want the prestige of being venture funded and working with all these big names. And we were sort of the antithesis of that. And in fact, my own PhD advisor at points during the history of Sleepy Cat told us we were idiots for not going out and taking venture. And then when the boom of the early 2000s became the bust, he then thought we were brilliant for having this open source dual model. And I'm pretty sure that we didn't actually change our intellect at any point. We just really, we were really invested in building a cool product, not in getting rich. And I think a lot of people let the lure of fame and fortune cloud their decision making, even today. That's amazing to hear about how you made that conscious choice and you were able to stick with it and build this product out to the vision that you had for it. ACM Bytecast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite platform. For you personally, Margot, you did make a transition from running this as an, you know, an open source product into a business and then being the CTO while also balancing your academic career. That's no mean feat. So how did you do it? I mean, I know you mentioned 80 hour weeks. <laughs> My heart stopped for a minute. But what else are we missing? I've mentioned the little bit crazy part, right? You know, we didn't know exactly what we were getting ourselves into. 
And it really was. Both of us had day jobs when we started. And so it was like, do all the work for the day job, which in my case meant try to get tenure and then figure out what cycles you have for the night job, which is how to get Berkeley DB into a stable version that we could sell. So it was totally insane. I don't actually recommend this for most people, but we were we were younger then. This was pre-kids, although we did have our first child only a year or so after starting the company. I Not necessarily my recommended parenting advice either, but it seems to work out. My That, that particular child has now become a trusted colleague. and It's fabulous. So it was crazy. It was insane. I wouldn't advise anybody to do it, but it was the right thing for me to do at the time. It's, you know, it is our journey. And when you look back at it, of course, you know, you have a different vision of or a different view of how things would have played out. But um, it sounds like it worked out really well for you. But speaking of tenure at Harvard, uh, Margot, I did read that you were only the second woman to gain tenure at Harvard. What was that journey like? <laughs> so I was the first junior woman promoted from within in the entire what is now School of Engineering and Applied Sciences was the Division of Engineering and Applied Sciences at the time. The first woman was Barbara Gross. She was hired in as a tenured professor. She was wonderful and fabulous, and I'm sure I couldn't have gotten where I got without her. So there were a couple of firsts in there, like when I had to explain to my dean that I was about to have a baby. Unlike my male colleagues who could show up at Christmas parties with wives who were eight months pregnant, you know that was not an option for me. It was going to become very apparent that there was a, a child on the horizon. But I have to say, the, you know, my dean was amazing. So I go in to break the news, and he's like, so, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, my plan is that the baby's due in December, so I will co-teach in the fall. I will front load my responsibilities so that, you know, when the baby arrives, my colleague can take over. And then in the spring, I will come back to work with the baby in tow, and I'll be able to teach my course in the spring. This was in the days before reasonably decent parental leave policies and stuff like that. So that was the plan. And he was like, okay, like, really? That was it? And so I brought a baby to work for nine months. And my colleagues, for the most part, were amazing and wonderful. There were several moments where colleagues just said the right thing. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for senior people to say the right thing. And so the two that really stick in my head, one was Barbara Gross, who was running a faculty search. We were a tiny department, and she was looking for people to go out to dinner with candidates. And I said, look, I'm happy to do it, but like, you know, the little guy's going to be in tow. And she said, well, that's fine, because we wouldn't hire anybody for whom that was a problem. And it was like, wow, okay, like, that's really cool. And then I'll never forget the other one. So um, Michael Rabin was my esteemed colleague, Turing Award winner, awesome person. And when my son was four weeks old, I decided that I would venture into Cambridge and have lunch with my colleagues. Casual lunch, nothing official. So I walk into the room and it's all the people I feel comfortable with. And so I'm not stressing about the like, oh my God, do I breastfeed in front of like what happens? And so I fed the kid beforehand anyway. And I get in there and it's all the people I feel comfortable with, the other junior faculty and Barbara's there. And then Michael walks in. And of course, 30 seconds later, my son starts to indicate that he is hungry. And, you know, mentally I'm going to be like, do I leave and excuse myself? Do I like wrap blankets around my head and body so I can, you know, what do I do here? 
And I thought if I'm bringing the kid to work, like this is going to keep coming up. So we're just going to feed the kid. So I had my lunch, he had his. And as we're leaving, Michael stops me and he says, what are your plans for next term? And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, my God, here we go. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to bring the baby to work. And he's like, oh, that's wonderful. You'll be able to be with him and we'll still have you back. And I was speechless and grateful and a little choked up, if you can hear. And I actually got to tell Michael that story recently. He is long since retired, but I was visiting him in Jerusalem And I made it a point to tell him just what a huge, huge impact that had. So the message to all you senior people out there is that your words matter a lot. And judgmental ones will devastate your junior colleagues and supportive ones will be remembered 25 years later. You know, honestly, Margot, the way you describe it sounds like a dream, at least for most women out there, right? It is a real struggle. And the kind of challenges that we face are are just not those that our, our male colleagues might face, especially when you're talking about, you know, feeding the baby, taking the baby with you. There's just not any way that a partner could do some of those things. But, you know, what I love the most is that you've taken those experiences in your life and really, and maybe, you know, this was something that you always believed in, but you also have taken it to actually be a huge proponent of inclusivity. I've heard some of your talks around how you're challenging your colleagues to exercise that muscle and really create environments that are inclusive of all kinds of diversity. Would you like to share some more about that? I've heard it, but I would love for our listeners to hear more. So I guess not everyone had the same experience I had. And I think it's really important to make that clear. There were individuals who were truly, truly supportive of me and for whom I will be forever grateful. That doesn't necessarily mean that institutional support exists and that institutions are necessarily supportive of people. So I have junior colleagues who spent their pre-tenure years in the same institution and had very different experiences. And Personally, I tried to be the person who was there to support them, and I watched kids for some of my colleagues when they had to teach. I had colleagues whose children were the same age as mine, and I would take them out and do things so that my colleague could get work done. I don't think we've solved the problem. So there's all the data. Women are still doing more of the service work than our male colleagues. Too many of my male colleagues use their paternity leaves to do startups. There are huge problems, and it's hard to give up privilege. Like, I get that. At the same time, it's even harder to not have the privilege. And I think we all need to acknowledge the privilege that we get and be grateful for it, while at the same time trying to pass that privilege along to the folks who might not be getting it. And I I don't think we're yet at a point where we do that really well. I agree with you. And I think that's an incredibly powerful statement that you made. It is hard to give up privilege. We all have privileges in, in, you know, different ways. It is hard to give up, but to constantly sort of examine and make sure that you're aware of those and making sure that you're putting out a, a fair playing ground for everybody is so critical. Is there something that, you know, both organizations, you know, whether that's, um, you know, in academia or in industry can do, you know, culturally to, to actually improve this, um, you know, any thoughts that you might have? That you feel well, has I sure worked. hope we can, because otherwise we're in pretty dire situation. <laughs> big, yeah, so I think the first thing is acknowledging when we mess up and being able to say, wow, we messed up. And I think that is the first thing that most institutions are totally incapable of doing. In establishing a new lab at UBC, I actually got a chance to build culture from the ground up. 
and I did it intentionally and thoughtfully. My former colleague, Radhika Nagpal, who's now at uh, Princeton University, had a bunch of great resources about how she did that in her group. And I borrowed heavily from her resources. Yuri Alon has materials on how to nurture scientists. So, you know, I created an environment where the culture and the way we interact is as important as the research we do. And we try to have really open conversations about it. So, for example, a year ago, I was on the Turing Award Selection Committee, and unbeknownst to us, we ended up honoring someone who had made very, very hurtful statements, particularly towards Iranian students. And I happened to have pretty much all my new students were Iranian. I had, I believe, four graduate students. And when this came out, I was mortified and embarrassed and felt terrible. And rather than just going and sticking my head in the sand, I reached out to every single one of both, not only my students of Iranian descent, but also any of the other students in the lab. And I said, look, this is happening. I can only imagine how terrible it feels. What can I do? And I don't know many other people who took the time to do that. But I think it's that kind of empathy a word we don't use in computer science very often unless you're designing user interfaces, but actually thinking about what it feels like to be the underrepresented, the minority, the discriminated against. I have had comments that I am 100% sure were made in jest, but have cut my students to the bone. And I think we can't expect ourselves to be perfect but we need to hold ourselves to higher standards and we need to take responsibility when we mess up. And I think that combination of transparency and humility are really essential. And I feel like it's uh, both of those are in somewhat short supply in our field. I think that's, you know, just to, to highlight again, acknowledging when we make a mistake and asking what we can do better. I know those two things that you mentioned are so valuable and can really make make a difference in the um, you know in the life career journey of of anybody who's in that situation where they're not the sort of the stronger group. You know, talking about life lessons, Margot. One of the other life lessons I heard when I was listening to some of your talks was when you said something that you took away was it's all my fault. When I first heard that, I was like, hmm, how does this play out? I heard it. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed what you said after, but I'd love to hear from you. How did that come about? So I believe that came about after one particular semester where I just taken on too much and I was burned out at the end and. I was trying to figure out how to like take back control of my life. And what I realized is that I am in a privileged position to a large extent in that I do have control over what I do and don't do. Now, not everyone does. So I hopefully we'll have time to come back to that. But I certainly do. And so the, um, you know, the mantra, it's all my fault, is really designed to remind myself that I can say no. And so it was really about prioritizing things I was willing to say no to and things I wasn't. And for me, things that were simply to bolster my, you know, prestige or ego or standing were much less valuable than things that were directly going to help my students. And so even today when I am stressed out and overworked beyond belief, 
the one, you know, category of request that I never say no to is from a student. Like I need to talk to you when uttered by a student is an imperative. We need you to do this thing that'll be really good on your resume. That is not an imperative. And I've been trying to also inculcate in my, you know, my junior colleagues, like what are really good uses of their time and what are not good uses of their time? Because as a community, we are horrible at just asking people to give time for things that are really not very good for them when they are junior faculty. And many of the junior faculty are like, well, but you know, I'll get to know people and do this. And it's like, no, not this way. There are better ways. So, you know, it's all my fault means when you have agency and can make decisions about how you're spending your time, then you should use that agency to make smart decisions. Now, when you don't have agency, then it's a whole different story. And, you know, the reality is that one of the major causes of stress is when you can't control your surroundings. And I think in our profession, even if you are someone who can't control your surroundings, you are still privileged because we are in a profession where there are jobs and we are in high demand. And if your job is too stressful, you do have the one option of going and finding another one. And I think sometimes that's such a big leap that we don't realize that it might be the right solution. And, you know, when I was listening to your um, talk about this and, and what you just mentioned as well, I think what is really powerful and stands out is that it really takes away the helplessness, right? It puts you in control of the situation to say, if it's my fault, then I can actually fix this, right? And I can actually make these decisions hard as they may be, like you mentioned, um, it's not always easy to make these really difficult decisions, but at least it is a choice that we have. And you're right. I mean, in our industry, we do have a lot more choice. It's not just about in comparison to other industries, we definitely have it a little bit better in terms of just, you know, the ability to to choose how we work and what we work on. I wanted to definitely talk about your passion for soccer. I heard about that in so many different forums. Please share with us, why is it such a, where did that develop and what have you been doing with it? That's great. I can actually pinpoint it to a couple of, of key moments. I did not grow up playing soccer. I worked for a company my, let's see, this was the third year out of graduate school. I worked for Stratus Computer and there were a bunch of people who got together to play soccer and it was the young folks. And so I wanted to socialize. And so I started playing and I discovered that the sport was kind of fun. I'm not particularly wonderful at it, but it was fun. And so I went and I found a women's team in 1985, I think. I joined this women's soccer team, Charles River Women's Soccer Club, and I played with them between 1985 and 2018 when I moved here, except for my, they gave me a five-year leave to go to graduate school. I got to experience what it was like to have like a large group of women friends, which as a computer scientist, I had really never experienced. And Charles River or the Chucks, as we like to call ourselves, were amazing. And these are some of my closest friends still. And, you know, they were my tribe. And when I got tired of working in the male-dominated field that was computer science. I had these women to support me. And we've, I like to tell people we've been through births and deaths and marriages and divorces and everything in between. So that was how I got into soccer. Now, the real passionate fandom I can trace back to when the Women's World Cup came to the U.S. in 1999. I got tickets to a game in Foxborough. And I'd never been a huge spectator sport person because I didn't really get it because most spectator sports were like 
people who looked nothing like me. And I was standing at the game and the U.S. women took the field. And there was this wave that rolled over me. It's like, oh my God, these are people like me. I mean, they're way better than I am, of course, but, but they're doing something I really enjoy at a level that is amazing. And it was a transformative moment. Now, because this happened in the middle of the World Cup, I, of course, did not have tickets to go to that amazing final that we all remember. But I did decide that like this was my thing. And so when inadvertently the World Cup came back to the U.S. in 2003, I bought tickets to the final and the semifinal. And I took my women's soccer-loving son with me, and we had the weekend of a lifetime. And ever since then, except for the, I think 2007 was in China, I did not go there. But ever since then, the World Cup has just been a thing that I do increasing fervor over the past decade. So the last uh, two World Cups, I've basically caught every U.S. game. I tried to catch most of the Canada games last time and was a little thwarted because they got eliminated sooner than they were supposed to. But I got up at five in the morning to watch the USA-Canada game, knowing that regardless of the outcome, I was going to be pretty happy. I'm really excited with how the Canadian women have been doing this year. I think it's amazing. So I had a soccer team in Vancouver before I had an apartment. And the Strikers, which are my local team, are every bit as wonderful as you know the team I had in Boston. I am sadly out of commission at the moment because I'm waiting to get my second hip replaced, but I fully expect to be back on the field about a year from now. That's wonderful. Um, and you know, your your passion just comes through shining. So we wish you well. We hope that you're back on the field and enjoying the game very soon. This has been an incredible um, conversation, Margot. For our final bite, I'd love to know, what are you most excited about, you know, in the field of, of software systems or the research that you're doing over the next five years? That's a really hard question. I mean, realistically, what I am personally most invested in is seeing my three junior colleagues that we've just hired do amazing things. And I don't care exactly which amazing things they do, but I'm really most invested in making sure that I can provide the support that they need to get started. And then also to really graduate my first cohort of PhDs from from UBC. And those are likely to be in areas of storage and information systems and networking. And so I will continue to work there and support them so that they can go on and do awesome things. It's so obvious why those wonderful teaching mentorship awards have come your way. Um, you know, truly spoken like a guide and a mentor. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at ACM Bytecast. My pleasure. Thank you. ACM Bytecast is a production of the Association for Computing Machineries Practitioners Board. To learn more about ACM and its activities, visit acm.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please visit our website at learning.acm.org slash B-Y-T-E-C-A-S-T. That's learning.acm.org slash Bytecast.